the Chicago Bears Naperville Talks open the door to a fresh offer from the city of Chicago. And I'll talk with Cranes contributor Steve Hendershot about the latest installation of the One City 50 Wards reporting project. I don't mean to discourage the notion that a hyperlocal government is great, but if we're going to do it, we need to resource those offices. So it's sort of this either or. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Cranes Daily Gist for Wednesday, June 7th. Secure your business accounts and start earning more with a WinTrust MaxSafe account. With MaxSafe, you get up to 15 times the standard FDIC personal protection. That's right, 15 times the protection with the liability to secure up to $3.75 million per account holder. Now that's banking as it should be. Call 833-MAX-SAFE to talk with a local WinTrust banker today. That's 833-MAX-SAFE. Peace of mind is just a phone call away. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC. See FDIC.gov for deposit insurance coverage rules. I'm joined by Cranes contributor Steve Hendershot here to talk about the One City 50 Words project, another installation has published at Cranes Chicago Business. So tell me about this most recent piece that you've written for this project. This is the uh, the big recap. As the series has progressed, we have moved from looking at the structure of the council to how it impacts various aspects of what's going on in Chicago, from the fiscal challenges to some of the pressing social and civic issues, the corruption that has historically plagued the council. And this is finally the time to look back at some of the potential reforms that have bubbled up as part of those earlier pieces, but to just kind of lay them out one through five. If we wanted to uh, give a good look to what we might do to fix governance, especially as it relates to the council, this is the hot list. And so what stands out to you, uh, kind of looking back over this full reporting project, what are the things that, that were maybe were surprising or, or at least very uh, a little unexpected during the process? Well, the lack of a city charter was not something that I had really ever thought about or considered before beginning the series. That came up in the the first story, and it stood out just because Chicago was so unique not to have one, you know, out of, I think, the 25 largest cities, and that's just where I stopped counting we're really the only one because Indianapolis does have charter level uh, governance and state law. We're really the only one that doesn't have that sort of constitution piece at the top. Mm -hmm. So that stood out there. And then even as you move through the list, as I continued on in the series, one thing that I did was try to talk to people outside of Chicago. So when I spoke to leaders in San Antonio, in San Diego, I wasn't talking about the charter, but the pieces of local government that they work on and care about and that are also relevant as potential reforms in Chicago, you know, they were saying our work in our cities really depends on the charter as a foundation, which makes sense if you think about the role that the U.S. Constitution plays. Sure, definitely. And as you were talking with leaders and lawmakers, did you get the sense that any kind of reform or change is welcome here? Or are we pretty entrenched in kind of the way things have always been? There was much more so than you might expect for a city that, you know, not by accident doesn't have a charter and has managed to go through a, a century plus of, you know, that reform being popularized elsewhere. There was a lot of willingness to consider this sort of thing. It was also an interesting election season. So it'll be interesting to see what happens going forward because 
a lot of the energy to discuss this need for council independence, potentially involving a charter, came from the uh, the sort of progressive camp, which is now in power. And you know, if you look at Chicago's politics historically, once you've once you've got it, suddenly reforms to us to spread it around aren't as high priority. So we'll see how that goes. Another theme that surfaced in this reporting is kind of around resources with the lowest ratio of council members per citizen of any top U.S. city, which is, you know, an interesting little detail there. But what kind of conversation did you hear around that? So hyperlocal is really cool. I think everyone would agree that more citizen representation is a good thing. So, you know, why don't more cities do this? And the answer is it's just expensive to equip all of these offices to do all of the things that you want them to do, not only to sort of take care of the ward level service issues, but also to have some mechanism to gather feedback on citywide issues from the wards, bring them back up into the city, um, city level discussions. And then also each of those older people need policy advisors, things like that, you know, if if they're going to be sort of independent congressional offices, you've got to make sure that they're equipped to walk back into the citywide policy discussions as informed legislators. We just don't do that. So it's sort of a question of, in the first story that the headline, which I didn't write, was sort of, you know, 50 aldermen might be 40 too many. And maybe that's the case. Certainly, there are other cities that have 10 council members, etc. But I don't mean to discourage the notion that a hyper-local government is great, but if we're going to do it, we need to resource those offices. So it's sort of this either or. We either need to equip these 50 council members to do their job really well, or we need a different size council. Yeah, definitely. And then what about operational pieces? There was kind of this idea floated of bringing in a more operational expertise and maybe a devoted uh, staffing around that. Where does that stand? Yeah, so this is the city manager-ish idea. And I was careful when discussing this over the course of the series to stop short of saying I think that a true city manager would be a great idea um, for Chicago. It is a really popular form of government throughout the country. Some of the biggest cities have city managers. Theoretically, with the city manager, the mayor and the council set the legislative priorities, and then you've got this unelected, appointed operations person who just takes their marching orders from the mayor and council and then goes and does it. But in practice, that person does have a lot of influence over what happens in the city. And so for that to be an unelected role, it is a big deal. So that's you know a reason to stop short or at least carefully consider whether a city manager makes sense. But we also have on the books going back to, I think, the 1950s, this job that is a chief administrative officer, which kind of is attempting to thread the needle um, and bring some of that operational know-how, but at a lower level than a city manager. So interestingly, that position hasn't been filled in decades. Chicago's inspector general recently called that out and said, you know, our city is really bad operationally. You know, sort of forget the political direction. The departments don't talk to each other. This is a real issue. And if someone was in this job that's literally mandated under law, then perhaps we'd be more effective in this. And so not only is this a thing in terms of the operational bit, but it also goes back to the charter because it illustrates some of the challenges when the highest form of law is the municipal code because the bodies that enforce the municipal code are the departments themselves that work for the mayor and indirectly the council. And so 
when the mayor or the council doesn't want to obey the municipal code, there's really nobody to check them. I mean, what department head is really going to to bring that action, right? So this is where, you know, if that's in a charter, then it's at a different level. You kind of have to obey it. That's a good point. And then that brings us to ward maps. There's always a lot of conversation and a lot of feelings around them. But where did that emerge in this reporting? This is one, it was interesting to look back at the most recent mapping exercise, which just happened as a result of the census. The aldermen get to draw their own maps and they did so. And it's it's a weird looking map. Um, it's a weird map on a spreadsheet. There are um, some guardrails that you have to hit, you know, within 5% of the median city population within each map. And they just managed to get this thing just under the wire with with regard to several of the criteria. And it seems that political ends or political self-service was the goal, you know, in, in some ways with sort of, you know, admirable motives and in some ways less so. But what, what doesn't seem to have been the goal was, you know, sort of equal true representation in a way that like is obviously supposed to be the point of this exercise. And to back up to this whole discussion, you know, this series in some ways is like we're supposed to have a situation with an empowered council and a weaker mayor. And instead we have like the strongest mayor in the history of mayoralty. How does that happen? It happens through a series of these sort of small customs, practices, budget allocations, which, you know, through lack of access to resources, whether that's information or money, tilt the balance of power. So mostly those favor the mayor. In this one instance, the council has the power to draw its own map. And it's like, I guess this is human nature. So here again, you know, normally you have sort of the uh, the mayor's office going back decades, taking advantage of its ability to control some of those other customs and practices and allocations. And now the council has its one shot and it just does the same thing. It's, it's, it's not right in this case either. Yeah. And so looking back over this full reporting project, One City, 50 Wards, what are the big takeaways that you hope that people have from this reporting? And, and what, what next steps do you want people to take? Well, I was really struck by how different Chicago's government is with each, you know, it started with that first story and it was like, oh yeah, the size of our council really is different from everyone else's. The uh, lack of a charter really is different than everyone else's. And so then, you know, it was like, well, the second story is going to be less interesting because I'm not going to find another thing where Chicago is different than everyone else. But sure enough, in the fiscal thing, you know, there was there were examples of us just being different and not in a good way. And again, with corruption. So Chicago's government is different. We have these historic challenges. Why would we do that? Why would, you know, why would we continue to struggle with this form of government that is different from everyone else's and underperforming? It just seems worthy of examination. So I guess that's where I would leave it to people. I'm not championing any specific reform, right. but it seems like this is a fine time to, uh, to consider all of them. Indeed. And give them all a fair hearing too, right? I mean, that goes back to the city manager. Why would we, you know, even though, like I said, I have some reservations about that really powerful appointed person, but why would we just dismiss out of hand a system of government that is like more than half the municipalities in America? It seems like everything should be on the table. That's right. At the very least, things are worth considering. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, thanks so much, Steve. Always a pleasure chatting things through. Likewise. Thank you, Amy.
No matter what industry you're in, the successful design of our shared spaces for work and beyond has become more important than ever. The 54th edition of Neocon, the leading platform for commercial space design, runs June 12th through 14th at the Mart in Chicago. This is the ideal opportunity to find inspiration from top industry professionals and impactful solutions from more than 400 leading and emerging companies from around the world. Find details and register to attend at neocon.com. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. With a Bears move to Arlington Heights facing new uncertainty, a state legislator whose district includes Soldier Field is urging the city to make a new pitch to keep the team somewhere in Chicago. And there is some indication that the team might at least talk about it. Crane's political columnist Greg Hines reported that in a phone interview, State Representative Cam Buckner of Chicago said he believes a path to get Chicago back in the conversation may have opened in the wake of the team's announcement that it no longer is focusing strictly on Arlington Heights and is in talks with Naperville about building a new stadium complex there. Buckner, who serves on Mayor Johnson's transition team, says he doesn't know if the administration is refining an offer that former Mayor Lori Lightfoot put on the table last year to potentially add a dome to Soldier Field, but said that the city should be, quote, proactive now, given the Bears' statement. And he said it perhaps ought to consider other Chicago locations beyond Soldier Field, such as the former USX property on the southeast side. The team declined to comment on Buckner's call to resume direct high-level negotiations between Johnson and the Bears, but Hines reported that a source close to the matter underlined that the Bears' Friday statement ruled out nothing, representing a change from the prior stance that the team only was considering the Arlington Heights option. Hines also noted in reporting that Johnson senior advisor Jason Lee said that the administration would welcome an opportunity to talk to Bears management and is waiting for the team to make it clear it wants to talk. In a phone interview, Lee said to Cranes, the mayor wants to communicate, adding, quote, there may be some opportunities that haven't been explored. Lee declined to discuss what those opportunities might be or whether officials have refined Lightfoot's offer. But as Hines also noted, this latest round of conversation with the Bears comes after another lawmaker who's sponsoring Bears-friendly legislation in Springfield. Representative Marty Moylan said he believes the Bears are now, quote, not bluffing about seeking alternatives to moving to Arlington Heights. In other reporting from Crane's political columnist Greg Hines, Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Giannoulias has sued crypto giant Coinbase Global, alleging that the financial exchange and its subsidiary Coinbase illegally sold unregistered investments to more than 140,000 Illinois clients. In a suit filed in federal court in New York along with regulators from nine other states, Giannoulias said the failure to register digital assets on a blockchain known as staking offerings left clients over open to unneeded risk and unable to fully value the worth of an investment. Giannoulias said in a statement, quote, the action will protect consumers and investors to ensure they can make informed and safe decisions in Illinois and across the nation. His statement continued by saying Illinois residents who invest their money in Coinbase or any other digital asset trading business, quote, deserve both security and transparency, adding, quote, my office intends to hold crypto companies to the highest standards. 
The suit doesn't seek any specific damage amount, but according to Giannullius's office, it has the potential to collect a total of $1.4 billion in fines. The suit was filed by the Secretary of State's Securities Department, which holds independent regulatory legal power. A similar action alleging violation of federal securities law by Coinbase was also filed by the SEC. Illinois residents who filed a claim in a lawsuit against tech giant Google for violating the state's privacy laws will see $95 as a result. Google agreed to a $100 million settlement last year over the use of facial recognition software. Any Illinois resident who appeared in a photo uploaded to Google Photos between May 1st of 2015 and April 22nd of 2022 was eligible to file a claim. According to a court document filed last week, a total of 680 87,484 claims were determined to be valid, resulting in the payout. But this is just the latest payout stemming from Illinois' strict digital privacy law, the Illinois Biometric Information Privacy Act. It's the same law that netted Illinois Facebook users multiple checks, including one around $400 just a few years ago, and another much smaller check earlier this year. Biometrics are unique human physical characteristics captured through technology like thumbprint scans or facial recognition, and it can be used to identify people and be stored for later use. Illinois became the first U.S. state to enact a law restricting the collection and storage of such data when the Biometric Information Privacy Act was established in 2008, that according to Bloomberg Law. Social media platform Snapchat also reached an agreement last year over violating the law, adding a bit more cash to the pile from tech violations. And fast food chain White Castle is now also facing potentially billions in penalties over its use of fingerprint recognition tech for workers. Crane's Ali Marathi reported that three Chicago chefs took home two James Beard Awards at the 32nd annual event this week, often called the Oscars of the food world. Damar Brown, chef de cuisine at Virtue Restaurant in Hyde Park, won the award for Emerging Chef, and Tim Flores and Jeannie Kwan of Kasama won Best Chef in the Great Lakes region at the ceremony that was held at the Lyric Opera of Chicago. Marathi noted in reporting that Chicagoans have fared well in the Best Chef in the Great Lakes category for several years. Last year, Virtue's owner, Eric Williams, won the category and got the only win for Chicago. This year, Brown won for Chicago right out of the gate, conquering the first category. In his acceptance speech, Brown thanked his boss, Chef Williams, for setting an example, saying, quote, I always felt it is extremely difficult to see yourself doing something if you don't see someone like you doing it. Virtue's Chef Williams made a comeback this year and presented the award for Best Chef in the Great Lakes region, along with past winner of the category, Sarah Grunenberg. Quan and Flores won in that category and added to their ever-growing resume of reputable awards. We have 46 incredible team members, and they're just good people that want to take care of people, and everything has fallen into place because of that. I never thought that I'd be cooking Filipino food until we opened Kasama. And 
to be recognized for cooking my mom's food is insane. Their restaurant, Kasama, opened amid the pandemic as a to-go bakery and launched a Filipino tasting menu in late 2021. Marathi noted that the spot has been buzzy ever since, with lines for to-go breakfast sometimes stretching for blocks. Their restaurant won a Michelin star last year, and Quan and Flores were also nominated for a James Beard Award last year as well, in the category of Best New Restaurant. The James Beard Awards were first held in Chicago in 2015 and are set to stick around through 2027, Marathi reported, also noting that Mayor Brandon Johnson was in attendance and spoke at the ceremony for the first time after being elected mayor, saying, quote, I'm committed to working with our city's restaurant industry and making sure that these vital places have everything they need to survive. That's Crane's Daily just for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's contributor, Steve Hendershot. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.